Uh, if you are uh, new or visiting, we're really glad you're here. also want you to know we don't normally just throw out buckets and towels to give you an obstacle course uh, to walk in. We just had a few minor issues uh, due to God's great creation of the snow. So uh, thanks for your just patience with that. Thanks for just rolling with that. And, uh, and uh, it's just still good to gather, still good to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it. Go to Luke chapter uh, 17. We're gonna finish Luke 17 this morning. Um, if you're new to Christianity, new to church, just kind of showing up here, brought by a friend, just uh, very simply, we love to walk through books of the Bible, walk through the scriptures, because we believe that the scriptures teach us and tell us all that we need to know about how we can be made right with God, how restoration can happen, and how renewal can happen. Um, and we believe that is found primarily and most substantially in uh, the work of Jesus Christ. And so you're gonna hear Jesus is probably one of the uh, most common names that is said in here uh, from start to finish. We're gonna sing about him. We're gonna study him. We're gonna hear about him. We're gonna observe and be reminded and nourished by the benefits of what he's done in the table. We're gonna pray about that and be encouraged in that. So um, Jesus from start to finish is all you're gonna hear. And I'm sure uh, you're also, of course, nothing new with Christmas season kind of being around us right now. Uh, you probably have a thousand different pictures or thoughts or uh, projections as to what Christmas means, what it should be. Um, and thankfully, the Bible gives us um, just the greatest meaning of all, the greatest truth that could ever be told in what Jesus has done and what he will continue to do for those who are his and for those who are not his and saving them to a rescued relationship with himself. And so um, we love to celebrate Jesus all the time. It's especially, I think, special for us around this time as uh, for the Christian, the Christmas season is to be treasured uh, deeply, and we're going to see probably a little bit more of to why that is uh, this morning as we just happen to be in a text that is going to uh, help us kind of see a little bit more of that beauty. Um, I also just, just wanted to say, um, Jesus' life, we've been looking at um, Jesus in his gospel. This gospel, according to Luke, is basically a, a, a written uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through this guy named Luke. He was a physician. He was deeply uh, concerned about people not just knowing the life and teachings of Jesus, but being transformed by those teachings of Jesus. So we want you to leave being made new. We don't want you to leave just knowing more information about him. We want you to know that, hey, there's a God who does exist. There is a kingdom that is perfect that we cannot enter outside of a perfect kingdom which he has given us in his son, Jesus. So uh, that's great news for us. And so uh, Jesus is the most humble man who ever lived. He's the most honest man who ever taught. He is the most courageous, most truth-telling person who you will ever hear or read about. And so that's why there's some hard things that Jesus will say. And um, this morning, he's gonna answer a question that the Pharisees ask in relation to the coming of Jesus, this, this coming kingdom of God. Now, you have to understand that this is not um, abnormal. The, the Pharisees were always trying to ask Jesus questions, kind of, ask him different things, usually to kind of trap him, but I think this morning they're asking something that's legitimate because uh, they were expecting some sort of Messiah, some sort of king that would come and try to make all things new. But what happened was, as we'll see, is it kind of uh, turned a little bit more into a political restoration than personal restoration. Um, and so uh, these Pharisees are going to ask him a question, and just so you know, um, we've talked about this. Jesus has addressed this uh, many times throughout the gospel, this second return, this how he did come in Christmas morning that he's going to come again, not in just humility, but in glory, not just to suffer, but to triumph. So you see these kind of things happening all the time in scriptures. And um, just, you know, there are some wacky views out there. I don't know what you've been taught or what you've brought up coming to know about the return of Christ, the second coming. There's kind of like three main camps. You've got the, the far left, which is basically this view that says, hey, um, Jesus already came, so he's not coming again. There's no white throne judgment. There's no uh, any of that. There's no resurrection of the dead. Um, then you've got kind of the middle 
camp that kind of says the second coming is more like second class, right? It's not really a big deal. Yeah, it's going to happen, but it's not really changing my life at all. Then you've got the far right, which basically says, okay, we got special revelation from God. He gave me the date. He gave me the time. He gave me the seconds. gave me the mountain to stand on. I'm going to get my pajamas and my coffee and walk up and wait for him swinging a miss every time, right? So we're still, we're still here. We've seen this over and over and over. I think over 200 professing Christians have claimed that they know the day and the time, swinging a miss every time. So um, what does Jesus want us to know about that? He's going to answer this question. We have to stick to what Jesus would say and what Jesus would have us know. And um, really simply, he tells us in this passage, we'll see this, um, accept what is clear and dismiss what you don't understand. Okay, so uh, let's go with what is absolutely clear, and let's follow that and be faithful while he's left us here until he returns doing the kingdom's work, doing the mission of God. And um, really, there's only one thing we really fully know as far as the return, and that is this. This life and universe as we know it will come to full consummation with a physical, bodily, real, imminent return of Jesus Christ. Right? So let's rally around that, let's enjoy that, and now let's look at uh, what these Pharisees ask in verse 20, chapter 17, verse 20. Here's what uh, Luke writes, being asked, this is Jesus being asked this, by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Okay, so the Pharisees usually, as I said, they usually try to catch Jesus. Usually they're asking something more sarcastic that isn't very serious. But here, this, this is a legitimate question, and they're basically saying, hey, um, you say you're a king, and you say a kingdom's going to be established, so when is this going to happen? Like, when is this kingdom actually going to come in full consummation? What's it going to look like? And here, Jesus says he's speaking, and let me just give a, a quick um, review for you if you're trying to understand what they're asking, right, where their frame of reference is for asking this, because I think I find that it's all over the place. Um, if you follow the scriptures, here's what you're basically going to see. Um, God creates the world, creates all that there is, right? There's perfect shalom, there's perfect harmony, there's perfect fellowship with God, there's perfect peace with God, and then we sin, since enters the human history, right, through Adam and Eve, all of our father, all of our mothers, right? We're all great, 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 grandkids of those two. Right, So we all inherit original sin by nature and by choice. And through that sin comes fracture, comes folly, comes disobedience, comes rebellion against God and his good design. And as you keep walking in that, you see that God will actually send prophets, he'll send leaders, he'll send people to basically say, hey, there's a restorer coming, there's a redeemer coming who's going to make new, who's going to redeem all that went wrong in the fall. So fullness of life, greatest joy, glory to God can be restored in the human soul, right? So he's going to show that that can happen in this Messiah, right? This, this one who's going to actually tear back and pull back the entity that was put in your heart towards God. It's going to be replaced with rebellion, with affection and joy and worship. Okay, so if you just read through the scriptures, you're going to see this. And so as you see him roll out what will fix it, what we learn is government's not going to cure it. Humanitarian work isn't going to cure it. Environmentalism isn't going to cure it. Pacifism isn't going to cure it. Um, leaders aren't going to cure it. New presidents aren't going to cure it. Like nothing's going to cure it other than this perfect king who's going to be a substitute for sin and rework and rewire all that went wrong in the human heart. Okay, so, so that's the answer, right? That's the answer from God. It's the most glorious answer from God. It's the best answer from God and so we know this king will come and but as you read and as you follow the Old Testament into the New Testament it gets um, misunderstood 
Let's just say that. So you have this kind of period in between the old and the new where the Jews are just constantly wanting freedom. They're constantly wanting to be out of oppression, not being burdened and oppressed by other countries and other empires. And you'll see a number of empires come in. If you just study this historically, a number of empires come in. They all try to oppress um, the Jewish people. And as you see that, there's a period of probably about 20 years to 30 years, most commentators say, where, where basically they find freedom. They find relief. And so they think, hey, political restoration is going to come. It's going to come through this military leader. And when Jesus shows up, it looks nothing like what they thought. There was no fanfare. There wasn't one grand announcement, right? Shepherds knew it. Some magi. But there was no lightning in the sky. There was no banner that says the king is here. He came in humility. He came in meekness. He came in obscurity. And he comes and he's born. And so basically the whole time as these people are walking, they're going, man, well, who's going to free us from this Roman oppression, this garrison that's being built, right, that we're living in, right? And we think it's going to be, we had a a season of relief from that, of peace. So here the whole time, here's what's basically happening. Um, They thought this this kingdom of God has turned into this king that's going to come is going to relieve us. This glorious day is going to relieve us from our external enemies of oppression and not our internal enemy of sin. That's our whole understanding. And we see that Jesus came to do the latter. And so they kind of wanted to know, hey, when's our Jewish nation going to be pushed up above all other nations? And so Jesus is going to answer them. And we see this on Palm Sunday, right? I don't know if you guys have, have kind of looked at that, right? You, you've got Jesus riding in, right, for his grand entrance, right? The week before, he will give his life as a ransom for many on the cross. And you've got everybody screaming out, Hosanna, 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 God saves, Right? Like, God save us. Now, here's what's crazy. You know that actually what they're really saying in Hosanna, God save us, is there's a majority of people that are saying, hey, the public support is at its highest. We now have someone to come in here and free us from the Roman garrison, the Roman oppression. This is the time to do it. The time is to happen now. And what happens? He does not enter on a huge white throne or glorious horse. He tells his disciples, hey, uh, can you get a donkey for me? And he gets on his donkey and rides in, and he enters not as a conquering hero, but as a servant to give his life. He comes not to kill, but to be killed. He comes not to wage war, but to bring peace. So the coming of Jesus is one of the farthest things from their understanding of what they thought it would look like. So when these Pharisees ask this question of, hey, when's the kingdom of God coming? That's what they're thinking. That's the picture that they have in their head. Now, um, I think we can all agree to a certain extent, right, um, regardless of time and place, culture and land, that everyone at some way, shape, or form is hardwired to seek out a savior, right? Look at the landscape, right? Nobody can disagree. Why are we trying to cure world hunger? Why are we trying to fill up water wells and all these places don't have water? Why are we trying to cure cancer? Why are we trying to do anything? Because in you already is a hunger, is an angst, is a longing for something to be made right, something to be restored, right? You want to see shalom. You want to see peace. Why do we want the right president? Because we want shalom. We want peace. We want restoration. Yet time after time after time, if you just look at history, right, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat, nothing will do it. And yet, praise God, brothers and sisters, we have the glorious truth that Jesus Christ crucified and risen does. Right? That as the gospel transforms cultures and people, the people transform the culture within it, not the other way around. We don't try to moralize or Christianize a nation. We try to bring the good news of Jesus into human hearts, into souls that will reverberate to the ends of the earth. 
And that's the way that God has designed it to be. And so look at what Jesus says here. He says it's not going to come with signs to be observed. Oh, and by the way, it's right in front of you. I love that. It's right, it's right in the midst of you. He's saying, hey, the kingdom of God is right in front of you. I'm that perfect king. The king you've been longing for, the Messiah you've been longing for, I'm standing right in front of you. And he goes, you're looking for the wrong things. Not over here, not over here. I'm standing right in front of your face. This is the irony of this passage is they're looking at the coming of the kingdom. They're, they're talking to him. right? We've seen that throughout Luke. right? The questions they will ask Jesus are the very things that Jesus fulfills. And here we see that he's just showing, hey, I'm the restorer of what went wrong in Genesis 3. I'm the one who's going to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm the one who's going to break my body and shed my blood. I'm the one who's going to be the substitute. I'm the one that wrath's going to fall on. I'm the one that's going to resurrect to enable a resurrection of the dead. I'm the one who's not only going to do all of this but return again in glory. You're looking at him. It's It's him. And Jesus, as he says this, as he says signs not to be observed, um, I think the easiest, most helpful ways to see this is there's, it's because there's really going to be two forms of this kingdom of God. You really, throughout the scriptures, see an external kingdom of God and an internal kingdom of God. You have the external kingdom of God, which is basically the high level 30,000 foot, hey, God rules and reigns over the cosmos, over all authority, over all people, over all lands. He's the one who the curse has created rebellion against the king. He will remove the curse ultimately, so he will be in perfect harmony with all of those who he loves loves and saves. And so um, you have this. He is in authority over all things. He has an external kingdom of God ruling and reigning. He will recreate a new heaven and a new earth where people will live with perfect shalom and God. Those who are not one of his own, those who have not trusted in the work of his son will not be in that kingdom, but be an eternal tormented kingdom of darkness with gnashing of teeth. We've been seeing that throughout the gospel of Luke. And so here there's that external, but then there's this internal sense. There's this internal reality of the kingdom of God, and that's this reality that that God every day is purchasing people for his own possession. That the kingdom of God is is growing every single day. There's not necessarily signs to be observed. It's things only the believer can see, and the believer ultimately has. You can't, I mean, this is Luke. I mean, the the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Luke are are looking for things, and meanwhile, Jesus himself is saving, curing, healing, rescuing people into a kingdom. And they just see it as fanfare and magic acts. But he's purchasing people's souls, he's forgiving sin. That's the constant divide we've been seeing throughout this Gospel. And here you have Jesus showing hey, there's an internal aspect. The kingdom's growing as people are brought into salvation. It's a, a text, I think Romans 13 or 14, where Paul says the kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. That means um, the kingdom of God, the, an aspect of the kingdom of God is righteousness that's imputed to your heart from Christ. It's internal. The peace you feel, the joy you have with God is something you're given in the great gospel. It's internal. It's not something you can measure. It's not something you can wager. This is why Jesus says the kingdom is not necessarily some observable event. In another sense, it's just continuing to happen. The kingdom of God is continuing to be something that is being revealed and being enveloped all because of Jesus Christ. And it's going to continue to come in its final sense. The kingdom of God is, is not... I was trying to think of a way to, to think through this. Just The kingdom of God is not necessarily something to, to think about new events or new material things, but new people. 
Right? So you have, you have one half of the world that's thinking, okay, this is all about making restoration, having a revolution militarily, governmentally, then other people realize the kingdom of God is something that is making a people new. And that's what Jesus is showing here. And he turns to his disciples, interesting, and he talks about this consummation. What comes after this? What comes after the life, death, and resurrection of himself comes his second coming. And he, he says this to his disciples. I think because he realized, well, the Pharisees don't understand this. They're not seeing this. So let me share with you guys, as they're listening in, right, the Pharisees never go away, right? They're just that nagging aunt or uncle who just sits nearby and asks you questions and, you know what I mean, or brother or sister pesters you. You know what I'm saying? They're always there. Every time you're trying to have a private conversation, oh, what'd you say? What'd you say? Trying to catch you in something okay this is the Pharisees so he turns to the disciples the Pharisees are still there they hear this Jesus is always wise in what he says look at what he says he said to the disciples verse 22 the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man son of man is a reference to Jesus himself from Daniel 7 um, this God that will save this God that will restore and he says and you will not see it and they will say to you, look there or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So Jesus shifts to the second coming, the consummation aspect of this kingdom of God. Right? This is the, the final reality in the future. It hasn't come yet. And he says, hey, there's going to be times where you long for the return of Jesus. Okay, Christian, this is you and me, right? There are so many days. We look at culture. We look at the state of affairs of, of, the, of the nation, of the world. We look at Aleppo. We look at just horrendous, horrific, evil, wickedness is happening. And it doesn't your heart say, come Lord Jesus? So here's the thing. He's saying, as you begin to want and long for the return of Jesus Christ, right? We all want that as Christians. This is great news for us that one day everything will be pushed back. Darkness will be gone. Sin will be gone. Tears will be gone. We won't have to vote anymore. Jesus will always be president, right? We want that. Like, that's, that's coming. That's for us as believers. But he says, you're going you're gonna to long for that, become so eager that you're also going to be more susceptible to deception. Because you're going to want it. False prophets will come, false teachers will come, and they're going to say, hey, uh, this is the end. They're going to pull their charts, graphs. They're going to bring out a persuasive argument and say, hey, uh, here's when he's coming. Here's when it's going to happen. And he says, don't listen to them. Don't follow them. He has not revealed the time. He's not revealed the day. He says, you keep being faithful in your job. You keep being an ambassador of reconciliation in your neighborhood and in your workplace. You keep loving Jesus. You keep repenting from sin. Don't get caught up in the day and time. You just keep being faithful. Because what people are going to try to do is exactly what Jesus said we're not supposed to do. And that's take all these signs and all these seeming observance and put them in a nice little nutshell where we say he's coming back there. He says, don't do that. That's not the purpose of them. It's not to predict when the end will be. And this is nothing new. I don't know if you read the book of Thessalonians, you'll see it. They just freak people out. They pull out charts, graphs. They, they do the whole thing. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it's not here. We're still sitting. We're still breathing. We're still functioning. We're still actively, aggressively going against the kingdom of darkness with the power of the good gospel. And so Paul will even tell them, hey, do your work. There's still kingdom work to be done here. So Jesus basically says, my coming is certain, but my time is unknown. You can know it's going to happen, but no one's going to know the exact day or the time. And listen, he says, it'll be obvious. 
It's not going to be a secret. It's not going to be like my birth that only a few were told and a few knew about. This is going to be known globally. Everyone's going to see it. It's going to be fully visible. It's going to be out. You know like when lightning flashes, he says, you know, everyone can see it. Like anyone who can see can see the lightning flashing the same way. This is going to be some, hmm, I wonder if he's coming back. Is this it? Is this the? No, you're going to know. (laughs) When Jesus returns, it will be so obvious that the whole globe will know that his return has come. Now, maybe some of you have wondered this, right? When is Jesus going to return? I mean, when is he going to set up his eternal kingdom? Man, when will I be freed from this body that constantly wages war with sin? Man, when will, when will I be free to live in a place of perfect justice and perfect shalom and perfect peace and perfect harmony and perfect rightness? Man, the men in the room, when will I be free from Genesis 3 and not have to work and toil the ground to, to labor And as we think of this, God is patient in his return, and that is a wonderful thing. I mean, think about this. I was thinking about this as I was reading this this week. If you're a a Christian, if you have turned from sin, repented, and trusted fully in the sacrifice and work of Jesus Christ alone through no merits, no rights, no performance, nothing that you could ever do, no moralism, no activity, no, you know that he did it all. He paid the debt for you. He rose again, validating it. He gave you his spirit Are you not so thankful that he did not say time was up before that happened? If you can remember your conversion, if you can remember when you really understood for the first time the glories of the gospel and he rescued you through his kind, compassionate, relentless pursuit, if you can remember that, is there not something in your heart that says, man, I'm so glad he waited. I'm so glad he didn't return yet. So this is a good thing. Because there are some of us in this room who have not repented of sin, who have not turned to Jesus Christ as Savior. And hear me, the patience of God, part of his gracious call in your life is putting you here this morning, putting you around a preacher and others who can tell and lovingly and willfully say, hey, you can still have time to come to me. You can still repent of sin. The the coming has not happened yet. But once it comes, you get justice, full justice, not in the place of Jesus for you, but you will absorb it all in your own stead. So he says, man, come to Jesus. Repent of sin today. That's the beauty of Christmas. The kingdom of God is here. It's right in your midst. It's being preached. You can have salvation in life right now. You can have reconciliation with God. So his patience is a very, very good thing. And he gives the foreshadowing of the cross at the end. He says, I must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Here, here's Jesus' um, big point. There's kind of two. One is, you can't just want everlasting bliss and skip suffering. Like, you can't just say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus, but I'm not going to identify his suffering. Like, you got to walk that road, too. Like, it's not, hey, yeah, I want, you know, you hear a lot of this, right? Yeah, I love heaven, man. I love my fire insurance. I love Savior. I don't like Lord and Savior. Lord and Savior, then he's, I submit my will to his life. He calls the shots. He's my master. But I love Savior. Well, he says, I am both. I'm Lord and Savior. And is that how you understand it, that there is a cost to count? He's been saying this throughout Luke. This is nothing new. So as followers, we follow him in that call of suffering towards the cross. But there's another sense here that he's saying, basically, you get none of the promises of God. You get no future glory. You get no restorative soul. You get nothing in that redemption unless I go and do that. Like in order for a second coming to happen and and for glory to be revealed and a purchased people of God to be with God in shalom in the future, he has to do it. 
Like he has to go to the cross and be a substitute for you. He has to give you the righteousness that you can't earn. He has to do all of that because in the resurrection, as he validates all of that, then do you get every promise of God being yes in Jesus Christ. Then you get to enjoy all of them because he has said, you can trust me now and you can have them now because I did what was necessary to be done for you on your behalf and Jesus did it. He walked your line, he paid your debt, he lived your perfectly obedient life and he gave you righteousness that you couldn't earn, you couldn't wager and you couldn't stock up and you couldn't figure out on your own and he said you're clothed with me, you're seated with me, you're a part of my family as long as you rest and trust in me and nothing else. You can have fullness of life. And you can live in the already not yet. The fractured soul's being repaired and will fully be in the consummation. So right, we live in that kind of in-between right now where we're longing for it. God is renewing us day by day more in the image of the Son and when we're in glory, we'll be fully like him for we shall see him as he is. Amazing. <sighs> then Jesus says, at the second coming, people's attitudes, circumstances, gonna be like Noah and Lot's day. Some of you guys are like, I don't even know who they are. Some of you are like, oh yeah, no, he's that guy that built that ark, but I don't think it was really real. A lot of animals. Were they really animals? How many? How we get other animals? You're, you're, that's all you're thinking about. Focus on the attitudes and circumstances. Yes, they were real. Yes, they were profound. But here's what Jesus wants us to understand. Verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the home not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. So Jesus says, hey, let me, let me give you an illustration. Let me help you because I know the people I'm talking to, the disciples and even the Pharisees, I know all you guys know your Old Testament. So let's chat about Noah real quick and let's chat about Lot real quick. Right? Noah is Genesis 6, 7, and 8. Lot is Genesis 19. So he says, hey, um, remember Noah? Remember Noah and the flood? Remember when I said, if you do not turn from your wickedness, turn from your sin, there will be a flood that will utterly destroy the earth. That water will come when it has not rained. That God will do what I have said I would do. That I will do what I have promised. Do you, do you remember Noah? Do you remember people preaching and warning people and saying, hey, you can turn from your sin. Hey, you can enter the ark and find rescue and find shelter, and find salvation. He says, you remember that? And remember when the flood came, and this family of eight was the only family that believed God and believed what he would do. The whole foreshadowing of the removal of the old and the starting of the new, which will happen in the new ultimate Jerusalem and new creation, because God promised he would never do that again until his second return. Do you remember that? Do you remember how God sent prophets and people to warn and only eight found salvation in the ark? Well, just as it was then, people will warn, people will plead, people will share. You can find rescuing in the ark. His name is Jesus. And you can escape not a flood of water but a flood of fire. 
saying you can turn now to Jesus, you can turn to the ark, you can turn to the one who gives salvation, who provides rescue. He says, remember the days of Lot, this is Genesis 19, this is a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. If you're a Christian or not a Christian, you've heard about this, right? Just utter wickedness and perversions, just rampant in this city, and God continually says, this doesn't just break my law, this breaks my heart, this is not how I wired life to be, this is not how I created life to be, this isn't how you find fullness of life, this is going to lead to your ultimate destruction, so you can be saved from yourself, saved from these acts, saved from these things, and you can turn to God, you can turn from your sin, and you can escape judgment, you can find freedom, right? And then he goes to Lot and his family and says, hey, guys, you need to pack your bags because judgment's coming. No one's turning from their sin. No one is caring what I say. There's mockery. There's ignoring. There's scoffing. There's hate. There's ignorance. There's, and people pleaded with them and said, hey, you can turn from your sin. And so as they're leaving, they're almost fully out. An angel of the Lord comes to them and says, hey, don't turn around. Don't look back. Keep looking forward. This is all, again, a foreshadowing of us leaving our sin that is, leads to destruction and decay and walking towards Jesus, the renewer of our soul. And what does Lot's wife do? She possibly loves Sodom more than she loves the Lord. And she turns around and she's turned to a pillar of salt. Many of you know that story. So here, as Jesus is sharing all of these things, he's saying in the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, it'll be just like now. People will be skeptical, people will be doubtful, people will be hateful, and be careful you don't trust culture more than you trust Christ. (laughs) Be so careful. I mean, isn't this the beauty of Sunday morning together? Like, Like, we actually get to come from a week of hell Literally, right? Some of you guys are only gonna remember I said hell in my sermon, but, but you know what I mean? Like, seriously, a week of hell, a week of torment, a week of living within the body of decay as Christ is renewing you, living around people who do not love the God that you love, do not serve the God that you serve, trying to compassionately, winsomely, wisely love them, share the good news of Jesus, right? Not as arrogant people, but as compassionate servants. We long to do that, we love to do that. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, we're thrilled that you're among us because we want you to know this, we want you to know Jesus and ask As we do that, is there not a wearing on your soul? Is there not a a tiredness that just grows in you to where you come back here on Sunday and say, oh, I get to be realigned, I get to be reminded, I get to look at God's word in a different way with all the saints, sing, profess, declare, take, pray, hear the word together to be reminded that, man, no, God has said what he said, even as culture shifts and culture changes, we remain steadfast on the truths of God and we know how it all works out in the end. Right, so, so we're all doing that together this morning, going, okay, that's good for my soul, that's good for my heart, man, I'm, I'm rooted now, I'm reminded now. That's what Jesus is saying, hey, hey, nothing's changed. I mean, historically, redemptively, this has always been people hate, people scoff, people reject, and God always does what he says he will do. And yet God always shows unbridled mercy amidst his ferocious keeping of his justice and holiness. You can come to him, you can find rescuing, you can find mercy. So he's saying, don't be like Noah's scoffers, be like Noah's family. Don't be like Lot's wife who turned back. Man, keep your eyes on Jesus, keep pursuing Jesus, keep going after what he has said that you have. Man, don't go after false predictions and false prophets and people that want to pull out their charts and graphs and tell you things and use scare tactics, just stay the course. Just keep loving him. 
keep putting to the sin through the power of the good, great news of the gospel, through the gifted Holy Spirit that indwells you. Keep clinging to the truths that Jesus says you have. Keep relishing and walking in the identity that he says you are walking in and not what you're tempted to believe. We hold these things. Noah and his family walked into the ark of Jesus and at some point, the door will be shut. Jesus is showing, you have the ark, his name is Jesus, and at some point, his door will be shut. In John 9, he uses that illustration, I'm the door. You can walk through me, I'm the only way to salvation, right? So some of you are here, and you're thinking, maybe next year, maybe next month, maybe once things get figured out, maybe once I get a relationship, maybe once I finish college, maybe once I, no, the door may shut tomorrow, the door may shut next week. And how and when that door shuts for you, you cannot control. So Jesus is saying, enter him now. Find rescue in him now. Because the second coming's happening, right? The second coming will occur. You can be certain of that even though you don't know when. And so you can turn to Jesus this morning through his person and work. And then a very sobering word in this passage right here, just as these people are going about their business as usual. They're eating, they're drinking, they're planting, they're marrying, they're buying, they're building, they're selling, as they're ignoring those who are preaching the truth, as they're ignoring those who are pleading with them that they can find salvation, that they can find fullness of life, that they can actually find what they're looking for in the fracture of their soul, they can find healing for their sin, internally they ignore it and judgment came. He's saying... Is this not true today? Sin, idolatry, abandonment to God and his good ways, while those who share the life-giving truth are scorned, ignored, rejected, scoffed at, and judgment will come. He's saying it will come. Sobering word. That people just in human nature, in human sin, in human fallenness want to go about their day. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to listen to it. But might God graciously open up your ears to hear this morning, Christian and non, of the goodness of the gospel that saves you and keeps you and the goodness of the gospel that can rescue you and keep you. That Jesus is a good, kind, loving Savior. And, and here's what's amazing. As you read all these things, especially as we're going to read the last text about vultures and corpses, you're like, see, Jesus isn't loving. How could Jesus talk about stuff like that? Well, I find it profound if the most humble, loving, compassionate man who ever walked the planet can actually speak in such stark terms. It just shows how truthful he is and how helpful he is. How could Jesus be loving if he avoided all of those things? So here is what Jesus says in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other one left. And there will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? Like, where's this going to happen? When? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Jesus is laying out a a final fundamental truth that the second coming of Jesus Christ will reveal where people's hearts are. I mean, this really is a warning to people to make sure you put the value where the value ought to be. Like, if you're a believer, if you have an eternal heritage secured for you, are you putting your stock in everything that's temporal or eternal? 
Are you seeking to preserve your life here? Like the world? The one who loses it, the one who gives his life up to Jesus, who says, you're my master, you're my Lord, you're my good king. I can trust your rulership. I can trust your kingship. I can come under that because I know you wired me, you made me, you created all things. So for me to say with my finite brain that I know how things wire and I know how things work and I know how life should be, I need to submit that life to you. Actually find life. You'll find ever-increasing joy because you're freed from the bondage of sin, the bondage of the world, the bondage of culture. You're actually freed now to be away from the consumeristic mindset of Christmas and be a conduit of the gospel remembering what Christmas does for humanity. You're actually freed from what culture and everything else does to try to enslave you and keep you. I've shared this before. This is the irony of every guy I sit down with who is addicted to some sort of sexual addiction. He thinks that I'm the one who's not free because he thinks he's free to choose that or the person in adultery, well, I'm free to have sex with whoever I want to have sex with. Okay, well, that's great, but, but who's really free? Because I do not have to have that to sustain my joy. I do not have to have that to sustain my longings. But you do, and so you chase, and you chase, and you chase, and you chase. So who's really free? I'm freed from that. I'm not saying I'm not tempted. I'm not saying I do not have wrestlings, but I'm saying at the end of the day, Christ triumphs for me. Right? So who's really free? You're the one in bondage. You can't get out of it. So Jesus reveals this powerful reality of what happens when the gospel pushes into your heart and your mind and your soul. You see the world differently. And when the second coming happens, it'll be evident those who were his. He's showing here. The hearts are revealed. He goes, there are some who are going to be asleep when he comes. Some awake, some in bed, some making bread. And the judgment of God, I think you see in this, is an individual judgment. He's showing that there are going to be two people, and one of them is going to be taken. One of them is going to find rescuing in Jesus Christ. What this means is that we trust in Jesus, not salvation by association. I know that Jesus has been saying this consistently and repeatedly because you know, he knows it's going to be such a, a, uh, a proclivity of our heart. Well, my parents are Christians. Well, my spouse is a Christian. Well, my kids are Christians. Well, my, so I'll just become a Christian, right, by association? No. No, the issue is you and Jesus. Do you know him? Do you love him? Have you submitted your life to him? Have you treasured the person and work of him on your behalf? Have you found freedom in the cross of Jesus Christ? Not has your spouse, not have your parents, not have your kids. He's shown there's gonna be two next to each other, man, side by side their whole life, and one of them will find rescuing and one of them will not. And when they ask Jesus when all this is gonna happen, he answers them by quoting a really well-known proverb. It says, where the body is there, the vultures will be gathered together. <laughs> Merry Christmas. What a, what a, just reading that this week, I'm like, man, this is such a, such a great sermon before, before Christmas. But it is. But it is. Because Christmas morning is what starts, ultimately, the rolling out of all of this to be accomplished. The incarnation of Christ is what inaugurates and sets up the status and steps up the game and steps up the, the big awakening for his second coming. And he says, on this day, speaks to the finality of physical and spiritual death. Right? Eagles don't eat carnage. Eagles don't eat death. Vultures do. 
right? They, they, they feast around that. And when he returns, he's basically saying there's no second chances. There's no opportunity to be made physically alive once you're physically dead. There's no way to be made spiritually alive when you've been spiritually dead, when his second coming happens. There's no purgatory, right? Hebrews will say, death and then comes judgment. He's saying that's all you need to know. Right? When, when we pass from this life, then we will see it all. When is it going to happen? I'm not going to give you all the details. I am going to tell you, though, hey, this is it. The finality is here. You've got one shot. You can turn to Jesus. You can trust in Jesus, the incarnate Son of God who came humbly, obscurely, meekly in a manger, who walked the life, received scoffing, rebuke, and all that on your behalf, who knows exactly how to identify with your every weakness, yet wasn't with sin. He was tempted, yet never gave in, never gave way, never fell into it. And you can treasure and embrace and take all of the good benefits that are in Christ, and you can Make him your Lord and your master and your God and your savior and your king. And he's the king of this perfect kingdom who will come and restore and make new all that went wrong. You can have him. It's in the midst of you. Take him. Beautiful. Beautiful. You can be made spiritually alive in this season. But once he returns, there's no chance for that. So the question is, just have you been made spiritually alive? Or are you still spiritually dead? And, and hear me, if you're in this room and you do not want God, you do not love his law, and you do not love his, his being and his worth, and you belittle his name, and you do not see his way as good, and you do not see his person of Jesus Christ as necessary for forgiveness of sin, then you can know you're spiritually dead. However, he says, praise God that he revealed his son in kindness to make you what the scriptures say, spiritually alive. In the incarnation of Jesus on Christmas morning, he came and he was born so that your dead heart could start beating spiritually. So you could start tasting of things that are otherworldly. You could start seeing glories that are so much greater than what you walk in and experience. That all the things that you're tempted to try and taste and walk in here that keep hitting the ceiling for you, that never give you any exceeding continual amount of pleasure, satisfaction, purpose, meaning, fullness of life, which they never can because they were made by God and only until you're, you're found in the giver of those gifts can you ever enjoy those properly and enjoy those to its fullest. Okay, he opens your eyes spiritually and makes you alive to where you you see how good God is. You see his kindness in the cross. You see his mercy unfolding. You see him walk and take your shame and take your addictions and take your pain and take your condemnations and take all the things that bear upon you in your guiltiness. There's an honesty that, that's created in your heart that says, yeah, I realize I'm totally guilty. I've broken it. I've broken it. And David says, all of a sudden, the law no longer terrifies your soul because it brings about condemnation. It starts taking, tasting sweet to your soul because you start going with each one of those commands. Well, I don't have to do that because that somehow wins me God or wins me favor. I do it because my heart wants to do that because I know that leads me to life. It leads me to joy. It leads me to pleasure. Yeah, why would I want another God? He's awesome. Yeah, why would I want to covet other things? I already have Jesus Christ. I have the riches of the one who made the universe. Right? You, your heart starts to enjoy that. So simply ask God this morning to awaken your heart to the goodness of his name. Even if it's pleading for weeks. You're in good company. People have dark nights, dark days, dark weeks. But we trust that God is kind. God is gracious. He says those who come to me I will not cast out. We believe that he hears 
our prayers. We believe that he longs to reconcile what went wrong in Genesis 3. It says in the scriptures that's why he's patient. He longs for you to come to repentance. It's the heart of God. It's powerful. It's profound. And this is why I think on Christmas morning, um, it's really treasured by us as Christians, right? Um, I think Christmas morning reminds us of, of this external, internal reality of the kingdom of God. Um, you, you've got really um, a, a few different things. Um, but the first is this, uh, this external aspect, right? That, that God comes and he, and, he, and he transforms and he makes new everything that went wrong. You have that external aspect, right? A new kingdom, a new consummation, a new creation, right? We're all gonna be back in Eden at some point, those who have trusted in Jesus Christ to share with God and his glory. But there's an internal aspect that he does. And that's why we love Christmas. That's why we love remembering the incarnation, remembering all that it led to in the purchasing work of Jesus on the cross. We love it because we remember that Jesus did something in our hearts. Jesus did something in our souls. I mean, all of a sudden you're freed. All of a sudden, man, this, this heart that was just in just such opposition, rebellion to God is replaced with love, delight, and worship. It sets you free from foolish pursuits, right? And it makes you aware when they are foolish pursuits, especially around this time of Christmas. I remind you that Christmas is much more than trinkets, toys, and wraps, and gifts, and those are wonderful and to be celebrated, enjoyed with family and friends, but man, there's deeper realities that we can swim in that people without the mind and blood-bought citizenship of the kingdom cannot swim in yet. Yet we have it. It's in our midst. We can walk in it. We can enjoy it. We can revel in it because the kingdom of God is here. Because you can have Christ now because of his incarnation and because of his life, death, and resurrection. It frees you really to be a servant. It frees you from your identity to be stuck up in the, in the corporate sense in our, our world of ladders and esteem and prestige and it frees you in your identity. So it's not about what you drive and where you live and what you wear, what you look like, or how you celebrate Christmas. Your identity is wrapped up in something much more beautiful, much more profound, which is the sun. Jesus, you get him. Righteousness is found there. Healing is found there. Hope is found there. Forgiveness is found there. It's amazing. It's amazing what Christmas does for us. So I think Jesus is reminding us through speaking to the Pharisees and to his disciples and all of us today by default, by reading the inspired word of God, which is why this book is so awesome, that, hey, the kingdom of God's right here. Jesus. He's in the midst of you. You can have him today, and if you have him, you can continue to treasure him today. Let's ask God to help us to remember that and to walk in that. God, thank you that the kingdom of God is here. Thank you that you brought the kingdom of God in its initial sense in Jesus, baby Jesus, the profound thought that that boy encompassed and held in the glory of you. And that, God, you lived that life, died that death, rose, validating all of the truth and ability that you have in conquering Satan, sin, and death and pulling back the curse. Father, would you help us to enjoy that more 
this season and next year than we do today. Father, would you help us to remember that, God, there will be scoffers, there will be mockers, there will be false prophets, false teachers, yet, God, help us to stand on what is true. Help us to be reminded and realigned with what you have said. God, help us not to be like Noah's scoffers, but Noah's family. Help us not to be like Lot's wife or the people in Sodom and Gomorrah, but Lot and his family. God, would you stir in us, awaken us? We cannot do this. We need your help. Father, I pray for those in this room this morning who are not Christians, who do not know the love that you offer, the love that you gave, the love that you demonstrated, the mercy, the compassion, the, the withholding of wrath, withholding of judgment. God, would they see that in its fullness this morning and repent of sin with their mind and heart, turn to you, realizing you pay the debt. God, you do it all. That the Christian gospel is not about religion and moralism. That, God, the Christian gospel is about freedom in a person who became what they couldn't become and offers them to be who he is. New, righteous, whole, forgiven. Father, would you save some this morning? God, as we think about Christmas this year, God, would Christmas in homes and in churches be centered around this beautiful truth, beautiful reality. Thank you for freeing us from what Christmas might mean to culture giving us greater meaning and greater depth and greater joy in Christmas being Christ. For that's all that we have. Fathers, we're nourished by the Lord's table as we come to the table and remember and see the benefits of what you've done as we treasure the benefits of what we received in Christ through your blood that was shed and your body that was broken. Might we enjoy that? Might we be fueled by that? Might we be encouraged by that? Might we be reminded by that? And then let us sing with thankful hearts for you are great, and your kingdom is here, and your kingdom will come. In Jesus' name, amen.